Hello and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reishman, and I'm here with Gadi Baltiansky. He is the Director General of the Geneva Initiative, a group that promotes the two-state solution within Israeli and Palestinian societies, as well as political arenas. They also conduct dialogues between the two parties and work with the international community to find political solutions to the conflict. Hi, Gadi. How's it going? Hi, Shani. How are you? And thank you and thanks for to the IPF for the ongoing work and support to our cause. One of our organizational values is perseverance, particularly around advocating for a two-state solution. And so I think that you're a really appropriate guest for us to have, given uh, your your decades of work around this issue and and continuing to sort of persevere um, in the face of what a lot of people would view as kind of, I guess, a hit to the two-state solution, right? And its, and its viability, perhaps. So I'd like to ask you, um, given that you dedicated your life's work to advancing this peace process, why do you think that it's still possible? Our listeners already know why I think it's possible and my colleagues, Evan and and Eli and Michael, but I'm curious why someone who has been in the room for several failed negotiations and please share with us, you know, what, what transpired during those, um, why you believe that it's still possible. And if so, why on earth it hasn't happened yet? First is like between us, I'll tell you, nobody is listening right now. It's not that I, I feeling of frustration is something strange to me, okay? I feel sometimes frustration, but what's the source of this frustration? Not the fact that it's not doable, that it's impossible to reach peace, that a two-state solution is, you know, beyond, it's way beyond the horizon. Actually, on the contrary, because I have been involved so many years with this issue as an official, as a negotiator, as an advisor, as an NGO, I know the unbearable ease of reaching an agreement. I meet so many Palestinians. I met the Palestinian leaders. I met Israeli leaders. I know that it is there. It's a question of a decision. So if something frustrates me, it's not the the difficulties to reach the agreement, but actually the fact that it's it's so it's so doable. So leaders, you know, they have other considerations and there are other interests and other fears, which I can understand, but uh, we should not give up. So please don't give up on us. You mentioned some of the fears and sort of the psychological barriers um, to peace. What are some of those for Israelis and Palestinians? You know, last uh, Thursday, we had a meeting between Israeli youngsters and Palestinian youngsters, what we call young leadership. They're, we're all leaders, as you know. So, But people that are activists, people that have a voice within their own circles and their own society. And they, we, we are having a series of meetings between the two groups. And they talk mainly about narratives, about fears, as you said, about hopes, and their personal story. Ila, one Palestinian who lives in Bethlehem, told the story about the Israeli army who came in the middle of the night and took out all the people, his family, himself, and all the people that live in, in the building, took them to the streets in the middle of the night because they were looking for someone suspected of something. And for him, it was a traumatic experience, of course. And he told, him from, told it from his angle. The answer came from a deal in Israeli, lives in Jerusalem, religious, not a leftist, who told him, a story of him being a soldier doing the same thing, not in Bethlehem, but in Nablus. Okay, so they didn't meet, actually, but it was the same experience from the two sides. After each of them heard the other, listened to the other, understood the other, I think part of the fear disappeared. I'm not saying that they are not afraid of of another confrontation, of another trauma, of another uh, negative experience. 
but the fact that people can listen to each other. I wish that leader, our leaders will listen to each other and will talk to each other as our young leaders, our activists that participate in the Geneva Initiative activities do. Because it's not only about maps and about security arrangements, it's about understanding the other. It's about listening to the other. And then if you get to know the past of the other, even if you keep your own different narrative, it makes it much easier to build a, a better future. And I'm afraid that the negotiators, diplomats, politicians, leaders don't do it enough. They, they act according to the role, but not always as just human beings. And sometimes this is all what we need. The power of telling our stories to each other and to ourselves is definitely a really relevant part of this process. But how do we achieve that on a large scale? Right? Because you need not just political leaders who understand it and diplomats, but you also need the day-to-day people, the, the folks we refer to as the spoilers in the conflict, and also you know, the everyday voters, especially in Israel, where uh, votes actually matter. So, yeah, vote matters not only in your country, in the U.S., but hopefully also here in Israel. So yesterday, last evening, we had, again, a Zoom meeting, a Zoom call with someone quite senior in Gaza, not a Hamas official, okay, but someone who served as a minister in a unity government who lives in Gaza. And the meeting was part of a a program for Israeli journalists, including journalists that cover the Palestinian issue and talk, I guess, on a daily basis with Palestinians. And still they came last night to hear for more than an hour to a Palestinian senior figure telling stories about the daily life in Gaza. Those journalists are agents, as as others, of of the message. Of course, we cannot meet 9 million Israelis, nor uh, uh, 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank or 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. But we can work with those who have influence, with opinion shapers, like journalists, with politicians. And it's through stories like the the ones that they heard last night, I believe we can reach to more people. Uh, You know, we, as Geneva Initiative, we exist now for 17 years. So we met many thousands of of people. It's hard to measure the impact, but I think more Israelis understand the nature of the solution that can be reached. Nowadays, and after 11 years of having a prime minister who basically doesn't support the two-state solution, it it, it is not easy, it is challenging. Our challenge is mainly to show that there is a problem, not that there is a solution, because still people understand the solution. And the fact that after all these years, the two-state solution is the most preferred option by Israelis and Palestinians, it's not a given. It's not something that should be taken for granted. It's thanks, first of all, to reality, to logic, I guess, and to the work of many Palestinians and Israelis, I want to hope, including ourselves, in showing uh, the, the, the components and the rationale of such a solution. We still need a lot of work and, and we need to convince about the urgency of reaching the solution, about the, the price that we're paying for the problem. But, you know, we live here. Uh, we don't have another choice but to fight, to continue to fight for the solution that would be the best option for the two peoples. So how do we do that? How do we incentivize leaders to take the political risks necessary? Because, as you know, there are people in movements like the BDS movement, for example, who believe that Exerting economic pressure, for example, is the optimal way to incentivize peace. So I assume, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that is um, not an option that you support. Um, If not, uh, what can we do to encourage leaders on the 
Israeli and Palestinian friends to, to put their political standing and honestly, even their very lives on the line for peace. So we as Geneva Initiative not only oppose the BDS, of course, but we even don't support or don't believe in an imposed solution from outside. Yes, we think we can get help from our friends and we need it. And we need the leadership of the U.S. and other um, significant players in the international community. But at the end of the day, peace will be achieved by Israelis and Palestinians. Now, we, we during throughout the years, we work with the ministers, uh, with members of Knesset, with mayors. And I understand that their responsibility. For me, as an NGO, as a non-profit organization, civil society, it's easy to say, no, you have to reach this compromise to make that concession. It is not as easy when you are the one who bears the responsibility. But that's that's leadership, it, taking responsibility, even taking risks, sometimes national risks, which we believe can be addressed in, in a compromise that doesn't cross the red lines of both parties. Political risks that politicians sometimes have to take, and I, I, obviously they think of them more than we, the non-politicians, uh, take into consideration. And even personal risks. Yes, I can understand why an Israeli leader or a Palestinian leader would be afraid of, for his or her life if they, they reach a compromise. But that's something that you have to decide when you enter politics, when you agree to become a leader. Yeah, it's, it's a risky role. I'm, I'm not underestimating it. But you are not there just to, to be called prime minister or as a president. You are there to take decisions that will benefit your people. Otherwise, don't go for politics. So I, I believe that if there will be enough courage, and we need courage from the politicians, I, I don't I don't think we can do without it. And, and we had courageous leaders in the past. Some of them paid a personal price. Tzachak Rabin and Anwar Sadat are two examples. But if, if you want to lead you go first and the others follow you. That's the essence of leadership. And if you go first, you expose yourself to, to dangers. Uh, that's that's what history tells us. Uh, but um, I believe that if people will be convinced not only of the price they are paying for not reaching an agreement, there is also a price for not taking the decision. If you are a leader, you don't want to be remembered as someone who's responsible for a tragedy for your nation, as somebody who's responsible for wars. We also have examples for that in our history. So in, in, in our meetings, I believe that when polit Israeli politicians and Israeli leaders meet Palestinian leaders and talk about the real issues and understand the thinking, the understanding of the other side, somehow it's easier for them to get closer to the compromise. The fact that Leaders are not talking to each other at all. It's a tragedy by itself. I, I will take another minute just to tell you a short story. We had a, a seminar of mayors, and there were like 20 mayors in the room, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And uh, and one, one Palestinian uh, speaker who was a minister introduced himself, and then one Israeli mayor told him, you know, I know you, we met in the past. And the Palestinian said, you know, I don't remember you, I'm sorry. I don't remember. So the mayor said, yes, you once came to give a lecture in the University of Haifa, and I was a student activist, and we organized a demonstration against you. We entered the room, we throw chairs at your face, and you had to run away. So the Palestinian says, you know, now I remember. Of course, I don't remember you, but I obviously remember the event. So why are you here? And the mayor, mayor of uh, 
Tzfat, I said, you know, because I reached the conclusion, and he's not a left, he's, he's right wing, I think he belongs to the Lieberman's party. And he said, uh, it's about time that, at that time, I didn't think I even want to listen to you. May, I may not agree with you today, but I want to listen to you. And the conversation that the two of them had after the seminar, and the fact that one invited the other to the to their cities, told me that day that, you know, at the end of the day, there's no better replacement than to listen to the other, to get to understand, and you can continue to disagree, that's fine. So I, I believe with politicians, it's the same. The more they talk, the more they listen, the, the better the chances to reach an agreement. Ehud Olmert was the prime minister, and he, when he was elected, he said that he will continue with unilateral withdrawals from the West Bank, as we did from Gaza. Then he said he changed his mind after one meeting with Abu Mazen. Why? Because he finally realized that Abu Mazen doesn't ask for the right of return, return for millions of Palestinians to invade Israel. He realized that only after meeting him, and then he tried to reach an agreement. So I just think we need more of a dialogue between the leaders, not only between regular people like, like us. I know uh, Geneva Initiative's an NGO, so I don't want to get you in any trouble, but are there any leaders in the political scene who you think have that, that courage to take the political risks necessary? Sometimes leaders themselves don't know that they have this courage, and they find it only once they're in their position. And I'm sure, I, I don't want to give names from the Israeli uh, political arena, but I think that Harry Truman, before being elected to be president, did think that he will use the nuclear bomb on Japan because he was a different kind of person. So on the contrary, I'm not sure that Israeli leaders today know that they have the capacity to take hard decisions. I don't know that Menachem Begin, before becoming prime minister, thought that he will withdraw from the entire Sinai Peninsula. On the contrary, he said that once he retires, he will move to a settlement in Sinai. Little did he know. The same with Rabin, who said one thing before and did another thing. Sharon, who said that a settlement in, in the Gaza Strip, Netzarim, is like Tel Aviv, and then decided to withdraw from the entire Gaza Strip. So I'm not looking for someone who answers all the criteria before he, he or she becomes, I, I hope, by the way, it's a she, uh, becomes the prime minister. I think, by the way, we don't have enough women in, in leadership positions on both sides, and I think it hurts. I think it's harmful. I, I think women bring to the table some components and some angles that uh, men don't have. And, and in the long list of reasons why we don't have peace, this is one of the reasons in my view. So I, I believe that he or she uh, who will become a leader will find themselves within themselves abilities and capabilities that they don't see now. So why should I see them now? It comes with the territory and, and with the circumstances and with the understanding that the buck stops here. At the end of the day, it's it's their call and their call only. Even if we don't see now the Messiah, don't worry. He will he or she will come. I'll take this opportunity to give a quick plug. IPF Atid, our Young Professionals program, has a Women, Peace and Security channel, which works to elevate the voices of women around this issue uh, in the policy space, in the Jewish community, um, and in the conflict and mediation space. Um, okay, now back to, uh, back to our so discussion. So just let me then add that we, the Geneva Initiative, also have problems with leading women from both societies, women with background in the security field, in academics, in civil society, in government. We work also with Russian-speaking Israelis. Only last week we had a fascinating 
uh, meeting between Russian-speaking Israelis and Russian-speaking Palestinians, and, and some of them are in, in key uh, positions. And again, women, Russian-speaking Israelis and Palestinians, uh, youth, journalists, mayors, politicians, they are all target audiences with which the Geneva Initiative on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side work on a daily basis. I know you also uh, used to work with the ultra-Orthodox Shas party and a few other unlikely partners in the two-state solution. So um, how did that go and who are we forgetting about when we think about the types of groups that can propel this issue forward? Yes, we have been working a lot with ultra-Orthodox Israelis, uh, including leaders of Shas, almost all of their members of Knesset. They have a few mayors, rabbis. Again, people are more pragmatic when they see the reality. You know, you can speak about the United Jerusalem forever, and then you take a tour with the Geneva Initiative to Jerusalem. You cross the Kalandia checkpoint, and you drive for 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You see only Palestinians, and then you find out that you are still in Jerusalem, according to the Israeli municipal borders. And then when I ask those members of Knesset from Shas, with which I, I went to Ramallah, this is what you are swearing about? This is what you are promising? This is where you want to be? They said, no, 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 but this is not Jerusalem. No, it's it's something, it's Ramallah. I said, no, 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 no. Look at the sign. It's in Hebrew, a sign of a municipality. You don't want to be here after we crossed Kalandia. In the past, Shas vetoed any negotiation, negotiation on the issue of Jerusalem. It's not the situation anymore. If tomorrow uh, there will be negotiations, as we had uh, several years ago, they, they will not leave the government just because we negotiate East Jerusalem. I'm not saying that you can change minds of all Israelis, but at the end of the day, you need only 51% to win. You don't need to convince 100%. So there are groups, there are target audiences as the ultra-Orthodox. I, I personally feel that we, at least we as Geneva Initiative, don't work enough with the Arab Israelis. We take them for granted. We believe that if there will be an agreement, they will support it. But I think it's wrong. I think we, we, we should work with them more, ask them for a more active role. They want to integrate more within the Israeli society. And the old uh, slogan about becoming a bridge between Israel and Palestinians can be explored much more. We know that Israeli leaders, and you named a few earlier, have the potential to really change their minds, um, to change from being uh, sort of hawkish, but then eventually negotiating in, in good faith later on. Um, and you, you told a story earlier about how you can show, um, you can show each side that the other has the potential to change. Now, uh, I'm sure as, as I have had, you have also had many conversations with Israelis who, who list terror attacks and they talk about the Intifada and they also talk, um, about uh, the evacuation of uh, Gush Katif and the burning of fields and airports and what have you um, following the Israeli evacuation. So how, uh, what sort of stories do you tell? What anecdotes do you give or polling or data to show Israelis that Palestinians as a whole uh, do have that potential to change in a way that would be necessary for an eventual agreement? I believe that it's always easier to answer the question, why not, instead of answering the question, how yes. So if you want to look for reasons or excuses for why not moving forward, why it's impossible to reach an agreement, you can find whatever you, you can select. There's enough 
examples from the past that can prove why the other side is not a partner, why the other side cannot change, why the other side is to be blamed for everything. But it leads us nowhere. I'm telling people, think in a selfish way. Where do you want to live? In a country that explains to you why not? Or how yes? How can we go forward? You know, Shani, I, I want to confess on one of my many mistakes. Several years ago, I, I got the advice to take Israelis to the new Palestinian city of Rawabi, okay, northern of Ramallah. And my automatic response was, no way, because Rawabi doesn't represent the Palestinian society. It's not a refugee camp. It is not Nablus. They don't have a kasbah. It's a modern and it's, it doesn't reflect. It doesn't show the occupation. I said, no, no way. But smarter people than me convinced me. And uh, we took, the first group was a group of members of the Central Committee of Likud. And they went to Awabi and they saw the nice visitor center and they saw the amphitheater and they saw modern buildings and shopping malls. And on the way back, they said, you know, Palestinians can change. They change. We have Now we know we have a partner. It's not, not so important where exactly the border will be. It's not that important exactly, you know, if this settle, isolated settlement will stay or not. But we saw people that can be people like us. And sometimes this is all what you need. So, and since then, we did a lot of visits to Awabi, obviously. So it's a challenge to show people that others can change. You know, when Palestinians in meetings with Israelis criticize themselves or their leadership or corruption or lack of women rights, then all of a sudden Israelis become much more pragmatic. So it's not about only about substance. It's about understanding that on the other side, there are people like you that want a better future for themselves, for their children, and criti can criticize their own leadership, their own way of thinking, their own history. When you admit a mistake, it makes your position much stronger, not weaker, because the other side becomes much more flexible and pragmatic. So instead of insisting that we have been always right, we can sometimes admit that we were wrong, and we were on both sides. And and by leading the conversation to this place, I I hope that we contribute a bit for the removal of some of the of the obstacles. I've taken groups to Rawabi as well, and always had very mixed reactions. And I found that the more left wing folks um, felt kind of turned off. This isn't really what the occupation looks like. Um, but people on the right were very impressed by the economic empowerment value. Um, and the trying to like build a better future for your children, and even if it's an, uh, an initial step, kind of overcoming the political barriers for the on-the-ground results, which is interesting. Um, now that we're on the topic of, of mistakes, <laughs> um, you, you spent a lot of time working on negotiations with Palestinians, and I think also with Syria, is that right? Yes, that's right. Once we had negotiations with Syria, and even we had a country named Syria, yes. Now I'm not so sure, yeah. What past failures can we learn from to maybe incorporate a different approach uh, going forward? Is there something that we're missing from the conversation? I know that you say that it's kind of easy to come to agreements. It's more taking the political risks and the leadership. Um, but is there something in the negotiation approach itself that we're not doing right? Or um, do we really just need to try this approach over and over and hope that the conditions will eventually be ripe for it to finally take? My 
personal lesson, one of the lessons uh, from witnessing the negotiations and participating in some of them was that Israelis are too often too arrogant to the other side and Palestinians are too often too passive. So I think both sides need to change something in this context. That's in the approach. Israelis need to listen more, to understand more, to know that they don't know better than the other side what's good for them. And Palestinians should expect less others to do the work for them, being it Israelis, Americans, Arab countries, internationals, and just sit and wait. They have to be more proactive, in, in my view. The more specific lesson on negotiations, in my view, is to try and start from the end instead of start from the beginning, uh, meaning where do we want to be at the end of the day? What's the reality? What's the vision? For us to take a, a bus or to take a train to pay for the ticket, it's much easier if you know what's the destination. In negotiations, when you start from the beginning, you're requested all the time to pay for tickets, to make compromises without knowing where this bus or this journey is taking you. So it makes it much harder. So to first of all, to agree on the concept, on the general vision, the general principles will make it much, much easier. And then you have the the self-fulfilling prophecy. Those who oppose the partition of the land, those who oppose the two-state solution, try to create the self-fulfilling prophecy. They say, you know, we left Gaza and we got rockets, although we got more rockets before leaving Gaza. And they say, you know, we offered everything and they said no. Although the Palestinians also offered us a plan and we said no, which makes sense for both sides before you reach an agreement. And then they say, so it's impossible. And since it's impossible, why to make concession? Why to make what it's called confidence building measures? Why not to build more settlements anyway there will be no agreement? I think we should try the opposite self-opening prophecy. We should come with the notion that peace is doable, that as Menachem Begin, a prime minister from Likud said, that peace is unavoidable. Wars you can prevent. And if you come with this state of mind, that it's only a matter of time. Of course, the conflict will end. The only question is if we pay a price before ending it or not. And it's up to us. You, you change the approach, you change the, the state of mind, and you say to yourself, we're coming to reach an agreement. You know, between us, Shani, last time there were negotiations, it was uh, 2014. Personally, I met the late Saeed Alakat, who was the head of the negotiation team. And in a separate meeting, I met Tzipi Livni, who was the head of the Israeli team. I will not quote them, but I, I can promise you that what they said to me about how the agreement will look like was identical. They had exactly the same vision. And they said to each other, you know, Saib told Tzipi, if it was up to us, only the two of us, we would have reached an agreement. Maybe their leaders were not at the same place at the time, but we, but we can go back to it. If people will come convinced that they can do it, that it's doable, that it's in the interest of both sides and that the alternative is much worse, it already changed the dynamics in the, in the room. And maybe one last thing in this context. You know, I'm I'm an Israeli. I live in Israel. My children live in Israel. So I'm a very I'm acting out of a very selfish interest. I want peace and I want security. And I'm a Zionist, so I want a, a Jewish and democratic state. 
And for me, it's the most important thing in the world. I believe, and I used to work with the prime minister, that for him, Ehud Balak, this was the main mission for him. I believe that if an Israeli leader and a Palestinian leader will decide that this is the most important thing, and they cannot go to sleep because they need to work another hour to reach an agreement. And the other things, the other priorities, I don't underestimate any of the other issues. But there are other ministers that can deal with those issues. This issue, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, should be defined as a number one priority, top priority for the leaders. And then you'll find out, like Olmert and Barak, who got very close to an agreement. And because of political, personal, and other reasons, they had to leave their position and didn't reach the agreement. But they were close to it because they, they put it as a top priority. So I think this is also um, a, a, a very important component in making a peace more uh, feasible. We've had, you, you named uh, several of the many Israeli leaders who have been involved in a negotiation. Um, there aren't quite as many Palestinian leaders who've been involved in one just because of the nature of their political system. Um, who's kind of next on that scene? Are there, there's many potential candidates for who will eventually uh, replace Abu Mazen. Are there any who you think um, are realistic? I know a lot of the Israeli negotiators come out saying that it won't get better than Mahmoud Abbas for the Israelis in terms of a negotiating partner. Um, but is there anybody else that we should be thinking about? I'm sure there is more than one. And, and as I said before, sometimes you find out that leaders are leaders only after they, they take office. Uh, but I don't want to make the same mistake that I think some of my Palestinian friends uh, did over the years, and I referred to it before, and that's waiting for something to happen. Uh, some of us have been always waiting for the next Israeli prime minister, the next is American president, after the elections, after the holidays, after the winter, after something. Um, I'm, I'm not young enough to wait. So I don't want to wait for the next Palestinian leader. I think the current Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, is committed to the two-state solution, is a pragmatic leader. He's against violence and against terrorism. And we need to seize the moment. I don't want to be in a position where we will miss Abu Mazen. We say, oh, how come we didn't... Uh, uh, take advantage of the opportunity back then in 2020 or 2021. I want to seize the moment. I, 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 I'm afraid that a new leader, a new Palestinian leader, whoever will be, will need the time in order to get the legitimacy from the, from the public in order to make the necessary compromises. And the next leader will have to make compromises, obviously. So, and I don't want to waste this time. I'm afraid that during this time, situation will become worse from all, all, all kinds of perspectives. So I know that within the Palestinian youth, uh, there's more despair and, and more understanding that maybe the two-state solution is, is, is an illusion and they support more of the one state without understanding that the, an Israeli government, an Israeli Zionist government, will never agree to a one state with equal rights. So the one state that they want will not happen. And the one state that we're leading to is the one state that they, the Palestinian youth, will not want to live in. Uh, and, and so time is running against us. It's not on our side. And, and, and therefore, I, I think that 
the current Palestinian leadership is pragmatic enough, already did some significant concessions that we don't talk about enough. They are willing to settle for a symbolic uh, a solution for the for the what they call the right of return. Not that they will give up on the right, but they can give up on the actual implementation. They are willing to for Israel to annex settlements. You know they are illegal by the international community. The Palestinians are, are ready to have a swap with with some of the settlements uh, becoming part of Israel. They are willing to. That, that the Israeli capital, the Jewish Jerusalem, will be bigger than ever before in history, and that all the Jewish neighborhoods that were built after 67 will become part of Israel. They are willing to have a state without an army, a non-militarized state. So it's not that they didn't make concessions over the years, as we did, by the way. Israel also moved forward, and Israeli leaders, even personally, they changed their minds. Today we're not in a worse situation in, in, in a worse situation than, than before. I, I'm old enough to remember the days when people were saying Palestinian state, you, you are almost almost a traitor. Uh, we move we move forward. And and if you if you if you take now the Israeli society and the Palestinian society, the pragmatism, the flexibility uh, are better than than 20 or 30 years ago. We are much more realistic now. We know what we can achieve and what we cannot achieve if we want an agreement. So I think we need to not to wait for an imaginary leader on our side, on, on their side, but just to push always the current leaders to enter the room and to negotiate a real agreement. A lot of what the Trump administration has been focused on is doing that, um, only on the Palestinian side, but um, what I would call kind of bullying the Palestinians into an agreement. Do you, in your experience with Palestinian leaders, do you think this is a realistic expectation um, for a positive outcome? I think I don't have to guess. I think we already know. The Trump administration, with their approach, not only didn't bring an agreement or bring brought us closer to an agreement, they didn't even manage to bring the two sides to the negotiation table. On the contrary. So the, the tactic of, of bullying one side or, or, or ignoring one side uh, didn't prove itself. Okay, they tried. By the way, they tried also to invent the wheel. At the beginning, the, President Trump said, one state, two states, I don't know, we will come up with something. Eventually, they came up with something non-realistic, um, not smart, not feasible, but... The concept was still the two-state solution because apparently even a genius like Trump was not able to invent something else, something better than the two-state solution. So who are we to invent something better? And and we all know that eventually you go back to square one. Square one is a partition of the land. There are two peoples in this land, Palestinians and, and, and Israelis, Jews and Muslims, Christians, and we have to divide the land into two states, because each people have the, the right for self-determination. So I think that, I hope that the next, uh, the Biden administration, first of all, will put aside the Trump plan and will put it aside or put it on the garbage can, actually. Um, but we'll, we'll realize that we cannot wait. And by the way, I hope that 
Palestinians also will reach the same conclusion. I hope that they will be afraid that another Trump will come uh, in 2024. And they don't have a lot of time. And I think that the, the, the developments with Arab countries can be actually helpful and, the, and can engage the Palestinians, not in the way that the Trump administration did by ignoring the Palestinians. On the contrary, to, to take advantage of the regional developments, to take advantage of the fact that peace became popular in Israel. The fact that 80% of Israelis preferred an agreement with the country, the United Arab Emirates, that they barely heard of before over annexation of a settlement, tells you something. Oh, bring us peace. We forgot about settlements, annexation, all that. Yeah, just bring us something positive. And I'm sure the same will happen with the Palestinians. So I hope the, the Biden administration will, will not be afraid of, of, being, of being courageous, of, of starting from the end, of describing a clear horizon, of trying to work with both parties, and not as the Trump administration did. So bring them to the room with, with, a, with a genuine basis for negotiations so, so we can directly uh, try and reach an agreement. Every month or so, I believe the Geneva Initiative puts out a two-state index, which tracks where we're at on this, where we're at on this outcome. So, if we're closer, we're further. Uh, what are the results looking like these past few months? Or I don't know if you've been doing it for a few years. If you you want to compare different outcomes during different periods, I'm also curious um, if the normalization agreements in the Gulf had any impact, or the Biden election had any impact. So we have been doing the two-state index, the TSI, for almost the last three years. It's a project that it's about to end. I hope that we will be able to, to find a partner to, to continue it. And, and because we're towards the, the end of this stage, at least, we did an evaluation by an external expert. And we got a tremendous feedback uh, because people want to see every month something that makes it in an organized way, describe the developments and how they had a direct impact on the feasibility of the two-state solution. Not only, okay, we heard about some settlement activities or plans or about developments, but how exactly, how it, it's being measured. And, and we did it in a very systematic, uh, mathematic way with the experts. And we saw that, uh, first of all, the public support among Palestinians and Israelis is going a bit down, but by far, the two-state solution is the most preferred option. So there, are, there were places when we or others conducted public opinion polls that show a decrease in the support, it has an impact on, on the poll. On the other hand, when Biden was elected, it took the index up because the, the idea of the Trump plan um, basically was taking off. Or when the annexation idea was taking off the table, it also had an impact. When specific events in East Jerusalem happened, it had an impact when uh, talks between Hamas and Fatah. Over the year, we the last year we saw the index uh, at the beginning going up, then going down quite significantly after the the deal of the century, so-called, was published, and the annexation plans were were seen as as something that is going to take place. So it went down. Then we had the agreements with the with the UAE and and Bahrain which in our view helped, although were met some negative reactions for the Palestinian side. 
And then eventually we had the elections in the US. So now the index uh, came back. But it's a, it's, a, it's a mechanism to show every month what were the main developments. Some of them we heard of, some of them we didn't hear about. And what's their direct impact on the chances to reach a two-state solution. So I'm happy that you're getting it, Shani. And you, like many others, by the way, we got already feedback from people that are, I'm sure, will be part of the Biden administration that get the index on a monthly basis. We got a very positive feedback just a few weeks ago from the special envoy of the EU who came here to visit and we met despite the COVID. Uh, and, and the first thing that she talked about was the, the two-state index. And, and others, many other officials, Israelis, Palestinians, and internationals. So I'm, I welcome everybody to join our, our mailing list to, to write us to the Geneva Accord and, and to, to get the, the two-state index that I hope will, will continue uh, next year. And uh, just let me say, since I spoke about the, two, the TSI, let me just mention the TSC, which is the other big project that we're having. It's a two-state coalition. Uh, we at the Geneva Initiative formed a coalition of 11 Israeli organizations and 11 Palestinian organizations. We all support the two-state solution. We work together, we cooperate a lot, we coordinate the message, the activities, the calendar, and, and we enrich each other with uh, information, with exposure to speakers, to ideas. And I believe uh, this coalition in the, in the coming year or the coming couple of years hoping, assuming that, uh, that uh, the atmosphere will be different than, there was, than the one we witnessed in the last few years and, and, and will be conducive for talks, for meetings with an official, this coalition can have a very serious and significant contribution both to the public opinion and to the decision-making process. Very cool. Um, and I, I do follow the two, states, the two State Coalition as well. Um, if our listeners are interested, uh, it's Geneva-Accord.org, and you can find uh, access to all the information we mentioned during the podcast. Um, what, if anything, still gives you hope? Since I like to end <laughs> these conversations on a, a more optimistic note and maybe giving our listeners um, a little a little something to, to grasp onto uh, during a, a time when the prospects for peace don't look super realistic at the moment. So, Shani, you're asking me what gives me hope. The immediate answer is you. You give me hope. The fact that there are young people, Israelis, Palestinians, Americans, Jews, Muslims, Christians, that are not willing to give up on their own future. This gives me hope. The fact that you are talking to me and people are listening to us means that people care. And that gives me hope. And the, the fact that rationally, if we think rationally, and we know we learned about other conflicts in history, we all want to think that we're unique. We're unique as human beings. We're unique as a nation. We're unique as a conflict. But don't tell anybody we're just like anybody else, everybody else. We are very similar. And while every conflict is different, if you compare the solutions, you will find a lot of similarities. So eventually, this is what needs to happen. In the end of the day, we Israelis, Palestinians, we're selfish. We want a better future. So if you have to choose between peace and war, what would be your choice? If you, if you need to choose between making an effort to 
kill your neighbor or to save your child, what will be your choice? I think that, you know, we're now fighting COVID-19. It's a huge challenge and people are busy with their own lives, with the economic situation, with the health conditions, and that's obviously can be understood. But hopefully the day after COVID is not that far. And hopefully during 2021, we'll come back to the issues that are for a concern for the long run as a nation, as people. I'm a Zionist. Nobody can be more Zionist than me. Like me, of course, but not, not more than me. And I really don't believe that there is another solution, another future for the Jewish people rather than having a state for the Jewish people, a democratic state for which we have the key. We decide who enters and who leaves. And the only way to have this key to our country is to divide the land. It's, a, it's our luck that the interest of the Palestinians coincide with ours. It's not the same. They have their aspirations. They have their uh, needs. But the situation is such that their interest is to have a, a state of their own, a self-determination, future, dignity, peace, and they can achieve it without preventing us from achieving our goal. This is the what in negotiation is being called the ZOPA. This is the zone of possible agreement. This is the only zone of possible agreement. They will be happy with their, their country, their state, although they will keep their dreams for more. We will be happy with our state, although we will continue to dream about more, and which is legitimate. And maybe one day our grandchildren will, will achieve more and will fulfill their dreams. But we cannot be hostages of our dreams, because then we, we have our dreams at night and we wake up into a nightmare. So instead of dreaming, I believe that if, if we believe in reality, if we adopt the realistic approach, then we become optimistic. And finally, Shani, to be frank with you, I'm optimistic because I decided to be. And this, is, will be, this will be my advice to all of our listeners right now. Make a decision. Decide that you become optimist. And then I think the chances of a self-fulfilling prophecy will be higher. Uh, and then one day we will say to ourselves, we were right when we decided to be optimistic. We didn't waste our lives. Thank you, Daddy, for joining us today. Um...